right, good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study of this little book of Jude, and we're actually nearing the end. It's only got a few more weeks to go. <laughs> Today I'm going to do Jude 21a. <laughs> so that means we've got 26 <laughs> letters to go through in, 20, in 21, so it's going to be a while. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> All right, we, we've said over and over in this letter, Jude is warning the church about apostates. These apostates have crept into the church unnoticed. It was a danger in Jude's day. It's still a danger in our day. There are many apostates in the church today. They're claiming to be teachers. It seems like they've literally overwhelmed the church today. Well, just as Jude appealed to believers in his day to contend for the faith against apostasy, I think we need to do the same thing. We need to know the Word of God, we need to stand on the Word of God, we need to be able to spot error when we hear it. After going into great detail about these apostates, he talks about the characteristics of apostates, he talks about the judgment of apostates. Now Jude switches gears in verses 20-23, and he begins to instruct the beloved, that is the believers, on how to survive in a time of apostasy. How we can stand against apostasy. Last week we looked at verse 20 that says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now the building up spoken of here refers to spiritual edification, spiritual growth. The verb for building is in the active voice, telling us that we as believers need to produce the action of building ourselves up. It's something we have to do. The present tense calls for continual building, on the superstructure of our faith. And we can only build ourselves up, as we talked about last week, by spending time in the Word of God. There's no substitute for that. So Jude is telling the believers they have a responsibility to be constantly building themselves on the faith. So let me ask you a question. What are you doing to build yourselves up in the faith? Personally, individually, what are you doing to ensure that your faith is strong? He goes on to say that we're to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit is to pray in dependence upon the Spirit. It's in accordance with God's revealed will in His Word. Prayer is an act of dependence. It's saying, Yahweh, I need you. Which is saying, I'm dependent upon you. I can't do this on my own. This means that while we're working on building ourselves up in the faith, we're doing it in total dependence on the Lord. To teach us, to guide us as we spend time in the Word of God. So we're building ourselves up and we're praying in the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Yeshua the Christ to eternal life. I want to look at just the first part of this verse this morning. Keep yourselves in the love of God. The word keep here is tereo. comes from teros. It means a guard or a warden. It means to keep an eye on, to keep something in view, to hold firmly, to attend carefully, or to watch over. Yeshua uses this word in His prayer to the Father for His disciples when He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. So, 
Tereo speaks of guarding something which is in one's possession. And the Lord prayed, keep these believers, Lord. Keep guard over them. Keep possession of them. It means to watch as you would guard something that's precious. Keep is an aorist imperative. That's a command calling for urgent attention. Yourselves here is to, and it's plural, indicating that Jude is addressing not just individuals, but the entire church body. He is calling for the saints to keep themselves. Now he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, in is a locative of sphere, indicating, as Weiss translates it, within the sphere of God's love. Now, what in the world does that mean? Is he saying that we need to keep God loving us? No. Let's look at verse 1. I remind you, this was a few weeks ago, so you might have forgotten, all right? Jude, a bondservant of Yeshua the Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Yeshua the Christ. Called here is from the Greek word kletos, which is a verbal adjective from kaleo means to call. Every time this term is used in the epistles and in Revelation, it's the same as the word chosen. It's a synonym for chosen. And it's the main word in the sentence. The other perfect passive participles are an apposition or explanation of this main one. Because we are called, we're beloved in God the Father, we are kept by Yeshua. That's the way you'd understand the grammar here. Okay, so we are called, we're chosen, and we're kept. So we know that once God loves someone, He loves them forever. Right? Once that a person has been forgiven of their sins, they are forgiven. Past, present, future, all our sins, every sin, every offense, every transgression they will ever commit has been forgiven by God. We are kept by Him. So Jude is not telling the believers to keep themselves. He is not saying, don't get yourself in a position where God won't love you anymore. It's not what he's saying. We know he's not saying that. Because in verse 24, again, he says to those who are, he says, to, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. And make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. He begins this Epistle with security, he ends with security. He's not questioning our security and telling us that we have to do something to stay safe. That's not what he's doing here. Jude made it clear, verse 1, the called are kept. The word kept in verse 1 and keep in verse 21 are the same exact Greek words. So in verse 21, Jude is telling those who are kept in Christ to keep themselves in the love of God. Barclay translates, translates this, You must keep yourselves in the love of God. Weiss translates it, with watchful care, keep yourselves within the sphere of God's love. Now, to keep yourselves in the love of God simply means to keep yourself in the place where you experience the blessing that God's love brings. It means to stay in the sphere of God's love. William MacDonald writes, the love of God can be compared to sunshine. The sun is always shining. But when something comes between us and the sun, we're no longer in the sunshine. That's a good illustration because the sun can be out bright as it can be and you're behind a building or something. You're not, effect, you're not feeling the effects of that sun at all. And it's not the sun. It's not the sun that has done something wrong. You've gotten in the shade. You need to get out of that shade and get back in the sun. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This requires consistent discipline on our part. You never get out from under the love of God as far as God is concerned. 
But you can get out from under the blessing that that love provides. So what does it mean to be in the love of God? What do we have to do to keep ourselves in the love of God? I mean, we have to do something. Obviously, he's telling us we do. So what do we have to do? Well, 1 John says this. Whoever believes that Yeshua is the Christ is born of God. And, and that in the Greek is a past tense. It's not is. It's has been. Whoever believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. The reason you believe in Christ is because you have been born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. So what does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? It means to walk in obedience to the revealed will of God. And when you remain obedient, you will enjoy the fullness of the love of God. John 14, 15, Yeshua said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I know so many people who say, I love God. Well, not according to Scripture. According to Scripture, you love God when you're obedient. And if you're not obedient, you're not loving Him. John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. That's clear enough, isn't it? He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That is, do the will of God. Obey the Father. Obey what the Bible tells us. Be obedient. God is admonishing and encouraging us. Keep yourselves in my love through your obedience. Now, when a believer walks in obedience, he is demonstrating that he loves Yahweh. It's not about what you say. It's about what you're doing. And when we're obedient, we abide in His love. Look at John 15.10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in it. So Yeshua says, I abide in my Father because I keep His commandments. You can abide in me if you keep my commandments. Abide in my love. Keep yourselves in the love of God is synonymous with saying, keep the commandments. Now notice what Paul said to the Thessalonians. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you. You are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. You're doing and you will continue to do. So that's demonstrating the love of God. God is telling us that The demonstration of a believer's love for God is the keeping of the commandments. What should be our first question when you hear something like that? (laughs) Thank you. I mean, we're talking about thinking people here, okay? I saw a meme this week. It says, I think, therefore, I don't have much in common with many people. You know, and that's so true if you're a thinking individual. But when we hear something like this, okay, the first question is, What commandments? Alright, that's what we have to ask. Are we talking about Torah here? The 613 laws of Torah? Is that Some believers would say yes. Those in the Hebrew roots would oh yes, you have to keep the 613 commandments if you're going to love God. I don't think so. I think as a believer, we're not under the old covenant. We're under the law 
of Christ. In Galatians 6.2, Paul says, bear one of those burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the law of love. We're to love Yahweh and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're under the laws of the new covenant. So that's simple. That's all you have to do is remember two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Simple, right? No problem. Should be easy to do. You don't have to keep a list of stuff. <clears throat> in Romans 8, 2, Paul says, For the love, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Yeshua has set you free from the law of sin and of the death. This is the Torah of the Spirit. This introduces a new facet of Torah. This is new covenant Torah. Paul says that the Torah of the Spirit has set you free. He's talking about freeing slaves. This is Exodus type language. Those in Christ are brought out of Egypt out of sin and death and made citizens of the kingdom of God. Through the death of Christ, we become dead to the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the old covenant. Believers often ask the question, since we're saved by grace through faith and faith alone, does it matter how we live once we're saved? Does it matter? What do you think? Does it matter how we live? I would say absolutely. But... It makes a tremendous difference, not in your eternal destiny, but in your quality of life here and now. And that's what we have to understand. Because people will, you say, I think it's important to obey the commandments. You say, oh, you're being a legalist. No, I'm saved by grace through faith. I'm talking about living in obedience to the law of God. And I think it makes a huge difference right here, right now, quality of life. If you're saved, you're always going to be saved. I don't care what you do. You're kept by the power of God. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks when we get to the very end of Jude. All right. But we're kept by the power of God. But if you want a life that's blessed, a life of value, a life of joy, it comes from obeying the commandments. It comes from walking in fellowship with the Lord. Let's look for a second at Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he delivers this message that contained all the great ethical precepts of his teaching. In it, Yeshua lays out, he says, love your enemies. What? Now, if love is a feeling, then we can't do that. Because I don't feel real good about my enemies, okay? But that's, love is not a feeling. So he's saying, love your enemies. That's totally radical. He says, forgive those who wrong you. He, he says, forgive those who wrong you time and time again. Just keep on forgiving. He said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Then in a conclusion to the message, he gives this little story, what's known as basically a parable. Now, listen, again, he's laid out all this ethical teaching. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Forgive those who wrong you. And then he says this, therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and acts on them. Okay, I just laid out these words. Now, you're going to act on them? Here's what will happen. They may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell. The floods came. The winds blew and slammed against the house. And yet it didn't fall. For it was built, founded on a rock. So here the storms of life come against this house and doesn't, doesn't affect the house because it's built on a rock. He goes on to say, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. All right, this is a person who doesn't obey. They'll be like the foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell. 
The floods came, the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now let me ask you, what is the essence of this parable? What is it illustrating? What separates the wise builder from the foolish builder? It's one word. It's obedience. It's obedience. One acts on the word, doesn't the other one doesn't act on it. Now listen, in this parable, Yeshua says nothing about believing. That's not what he's talking about. The stress here is doing, because he's talking to believers. We're saved by faith alone, but here Yeshua is talking to those who have believed in him, and he's stressing the importance of believing, of obedience for a quality of life. Yeshua says something like, it's important to actually do the things I've told you, not just think it's a good idea to do them, but actually follow through and live them out. Now, there's some questions we have to answer here to understand what's exactly going on in this parable. What do the houses of the wise and foolish builders represent? What storms is Yeshua talking about? And how can we build so as to be able to withstand the storms? Well, let's start by identifying the houses. I think it's kind of clear that the house represents our lives. Each of us is building a life. A life that will respond to many of the ups and downs that come our way. Yeshua is saying in this parable, if you want to protect your life from damage, you've got to be wise. You've got to act on my commandments for your life. You've got to build on them. Please notice that obedience results in quality of life. It results in preservation of life. This teaching is about obedience and life preservation. And this teaching runs all through the scripture. We go to Proverbs 10.25. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more. The storm. The storm comes and the wicked are no more. But the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Over and over in Proverbs says, Righteousness tends to life. Our preservation in the storms of life is tied to our obedience to the Lord. Now James teaches that our deliverance from the destructive effects of sin is directly connected to our obedience to the Word of God. The theme verse in James is James 1.21. James says, Therefore put aside all filthiness and the rem- all that remains of wickedness, and in humility receive the Word implanted which is able to save your souls. Now the purpose of the book of James is to teach us how we can save our lives from the damaging effects of sin. That's what James is talking about. James says we're to receive the word with meekness, the word implanted. When was this word implanted? Well, verse 18 tells us it was planted at redemption. Back up to verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is the verse. When I was doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of James many, many years ago, this is the verse that brought me to what people call Calvinism. This is the verse that brought me to understanding the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation because I read this verse and I said, His will. What about my will? It doesn't say anything about my will in that verse. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we should be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. We should receive, He says, the word that has been implanted would receive it with meekness. Because it's able to save your life. Soul here is a bad translation. 
The word soul is from the Greek word suke. It's often translated soul. It's translated life. But the word, it's life here because he's talking about your physical life being saved from the damaging effects of sin. He's not talking about your eternal redemption. The word save here is the Greek word sozo. When we hear save, we think of save eternal life. It is far more used in the scripture of salvation deliverance. Deliverance from judgment. Deliverance from effects of this or the effects of that. The expression here, save your soul, in the Greek is sozen tensuke. And this is never found in the New Testament to describe the conversion experience. He's talking about saving your life from the damage that sin will bring. We could see this fleshed out over and over. Just look at people. Okay, look at Christians who live in sin and then look and say, boy, I see what James is talking about. There's damage that comes from sin. You can count on it. You know, the sad thing is, I think it's kind of sad because it's not always happens immediately. I do this and boom, lightning strikes me. No, there's accumulated effect. It's like trying to talk to people about eating healthy. I feel fine now. Why would I want to eat healthy? Because it's going to catch up to you someday. Okay. You can't keep doing that and have it not catch up to you. But see, we tend to live for the moment, so if I'm okay now, I'm okay. I get away with sin, nothing happened, I'll keep on going. James is writing about the temporal effects of sin and how we can save ourselves from it. Save has the idea of prolong, enhance your life. It's used this way in 1 Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy and he tells Timothy, Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. So he's saying, watch how you live, watch what you're teaching, preserving these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and those who hear you. Now he's not talking about Timothy getting saved. Timothy's a Christian. He's talking about preserving his life from damage that comes from sin. Now in verse 22 through 25 of James, he states and illustrates the need for active obedience to the Word of God to be saved from damage that sin brings. He says, but prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, but indicates something further needs to be said. It's not enough to hear. He says, obedience must follow. Literally, it reads, become ye continually doers. Do believers always put the word of God into practice? It might be better to ask, do believers ever put the word of God into practice? You know, many Christians mark their Bibles. But their Bibles don't seem to ever mark them. The reason we're reading is so we can know Him. And we can live in obedience to what He calls us to. He says to be doers of the Word. Doers here is poetes, and it means a performer. It's used six times in the New Testament, four in James. Why didn't He just say do the Word? He says, be a performer of the Word. He could have just said be a doer. But here's why. It's one thing to fix a car. It's another thing to be a mechanic. Right? It's one thing to build a house. It's another thing to be a builder. And we're not just to be occasionally doing the Word. We're to be doers of the Word. Constantly. Every day. All the time. Doing the Word of God. And he says, not merely hearers. Acroetes. It's a classical term for an academic auditor. You know what an auditor is? They go into class. What's required of them? 
Nothing. They're just auditing. I'm not here. You know, and that's so many people. They're auditing church. They're auditing God. I'm just sitting in to hear what's going to, you know, what's going to be said today. They want to audit Christianity. They don't want to get involved in service. They don't want to be obedient. They just want to listen. Many attend church the same way they do a movie. They're just spectators who listen and evaluate the message as to how it appealed to them. Hearing is not an end of itself. It's a means to an end. We're not to audit. He says, when you're auditing, you delude yourself. Not anybody else. You're deluding yourself. The Greek here, paralogizomai, means to misreckon, to delude, to beguile, to deceive. It's fallacious reasoning. You're making a huge mistake. This word's only used one other time in the New Testament. That's in Colossians 2.4. It says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. Don't, don't delude yourself. If you think that all that is required is listening, you're making a huge mistake. James now gives us an analogy of how someone who hears but doesn't do, he says, for anyone who's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. The word looks here is the Greek katanoeo, and it means to observe fully, look carefully, look intently. Why do we use mirrors? What do we look at a mirror for? Why do we want to see ourselves? <laughs> I mean, really, we got a mirror, we go in there, why do we look at it? We want to see if we look okay. Alright, you get up in the morning, your hair is going nine different directions, you know, and you, all this stuff, and you, you're going to get to work and try to fix all that, so you look presentable when you go out, right? So you're looking for a purpose. And that's what he's saying here, you look intently. We want to see ourselves so we can make the corrections. But James says, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. He looks and he sees the flaws, but instead of fixing them, he walks away from the mirror. And guess what? When you're not in the mirror, I don't see it. I forget about it. Have you ever done that? You ever looked in the mirror, saw your faults and walked away and said, oh, I've done it a few times. You get busy and you're like, oh, I forgot to shave, you know, because I'm not looking in the mirror. How do I know what I look like? You know, unless I'm looking in a mirror. Now, James gives to the other side of the analogy of the doer. He says, for one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty and abides in it, not having become a forgetful here, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. He looks intently. Parakupto. It means to bend down besides to lean over so as to peer within, to examine closely. Your attitude when you come to the Word of God means everything. Are you teachable? Do you come with the idea, I, I just want to see if it lines up with what I already believe. No, you come with a humble attitude. Do you come in here with a teachable attitude? Do you come in here in prayer, Lord, teach me from your Word? Is that your attitude or is your attitude, I sure hope David's interesting today. Yeah. <laughs> Do you read over the text before you get here? Do you get yourself familiar with it so you can hopefully, you know, learn more about it? Or are you here just to audit? So many Christians think that, you know, there's a merit system and as long as you show up at church, you get the check, you get the box checked and guess what? God's going to let you live another week and be happy with you. 
I need to warn you. There's going to be a test. Okay? You're going to be tested. You're not auditors. You're going to be tested whether you like it or not. So it's good to do a little research, a little study ahead of time. In chapter 4, James says, Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it's sin. We know what we need to do. We know we're supposed to be in the Word of God. You might have heard that one or, once or twice from this pulpit, okay? It's important to be in the Word of God. Very important. He talks about the law of liberty. I love this. It's God's perfect will for our life. Seneca said, to obey God is liberty. Our liberty comes through obedience. If you want to have the freedom to drive down the highway, Garrett, you have to obey the laws. Because <laughs> if you don't obey the laws, you'll lose the freedom to drive. Okay? And if you keep driving without the freedom to drive, then you lose the privilege to be walking free because they put you in a cage, you know? It's just obeying the law gives us freedom. And obeying God, well, whether you like the laws or not, we're not talking about that. When you obey, there's freedom. James says that this man abides in the perfect law of liberty. The word he uses for abide here, parameno, from para, which means beside, and meno, meno, which means to remain or continue. The emphasis here is not on the manner of looking, but on the duty of continuing or persevering in the observance of the law. This man doesn't forget what he looks like. He keeps looking and he keeps making changes. You know, people for the most part don't want to seriously evaluate their lives. They're afraid of what they might see. We need to be willing to look honestly at ourselves and we can only do that through the Word of God. James goes on to say that this man is not, having not become a forgetful here, but an effectual doer, the man will be blessed in what he does. The word blessed literally means, oh, the happiness. Blessedness, as the Bible defines it, is the heart condition the whole world is looking for. You see, blessedness, biblically defined, is that almost indescribable, very real inner sense of well-being, of peace, of contentment. It doesn't matter what's happening around, you just have this sense of contentment. You can't control your circumstances, but if you're content, no matter what your circumstance, then you're in a great place. It's to experience an unusual level of joy. Blessedness is the calm assurance of self-worth. It's the vitality of the Spirit that comes when you know deep down everything's well between you and God. And please notice it's the doer who is blessed. It's the person who lives in obedience to the Word of God. In the book of John, Yeshua said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. You want full joy? There it is, people. It's by abiding. It's by keeping the commandments that we find full joy. The man is blessed not by hearing, but by being a doer of the work. He's blessed because he continues to stare in the Word of God and makes the life changes that need to be made. You know, God delights in our obedience because everything God commands us is for our good. And so what God is really delighting in when He delights in our obedience, He's delighting in our joy. I've given you these commandments for your joy. 
They're for you. Look at Deuteronomy 6.24. So Yahweh commanded us. I know this is to Israel. But the principle applies to us, okay? So Yahweh commanded us to observe these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. Why are we to fear Him? Why would He keep the commandments? For our good! For our survival! Look at Deuteronomy 10, 11, or 12 and 13. Now Israel, what does Yahweh, your God, require from you? But to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep Yahweh's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today, for your good. The commandments of Yahweh are for your good. You know, in the Hebrew mindset, the word Torah, that we usually translate law, to them has the idea of journey. Torah is a journey. And to the Hebrew, the word command is more the idea of direction for the journey. You want to know how to take the journey right? You follow the directions. And to a Hebrew, righteousness is traveling on the path. Wickedness is getting off the path. Now, if we could grasp, I think, this Hebrew concept about Yahweh's word, it would change our thinking about our walk. You know, we don't like commandments. They're too restrictive for us. You know, they tell us what we can't do, and as soon as you tell us you can't do something, guess what? We want to do it. All right? So they seem restrictive. Do this, don't do that. But if we think of it more as directions, they're helpful and beneficial. Unless you're a guy, maybe you don't really like directions. You're going to try to figure it out for yourself, right? If you want to get somewhere, you got to follow the directions. If you're going, if you're leaving Virginia Beach and you want to go to Maine, you got to follow the directions and you got to go north. All right, you can't go west. You certainly can't go east. <laughs> Not if you want to end up in Maine. And the same is true of Yahweh's directions. If you want a life of fellowship with the Father, a life of joy, a life of peace. You have to follow the directions that Yahweh has given us. Not to follow the directions and to leave the path is not to arrive at the goal of peace and joy. He's laid out directions of the path in His Word. So we need to read it. We need to study it. We need to follow it. Back to our Sermon on the Mount. He says, And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. What storms is Yeshua talking about here? Well, I think he's storms here that threaten our well-being. It, this could be literal storms. I mean, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods. They'll threaten our well-being. We respond to such tragedies. How we respond to such tragedies is going to reveal the quality of a building of our life. Will we be emotionally devastated? We fall apart when something happens. We'll be able to stand strong, willing to continue without despair. The storms may also be figurative storms, such as illness, loss of a loved one, financial setbacks, loss of our health, loss of family or possessions. Again, how we respond to such tragedies is going to reveal the quality of our building. Will we be emotionally devastated? Will we be able to stand strong, willing to continue without despair? Because I'll tell you one thing, guaranteed, storms will come. And when you just get one storm, buy one storm, then another shows up. 
You know, it's either family or work or church or something's always going on to cause turmoil to bring storms into your life. Now, you may be wondering, how does obedience to God help me to weather storms? The answer is when we live in obedience, we live in fellowship. And when you're in fellowship, it doesn't matter what's happening outside. It doesn't matter, you know, the storms, because we know someone who walks on water. Notice what Paul said in Philippians. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Wow, that's a great experience to learn, isn't it? Whatever situation I'm in, I'm content. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. Those are two drastic extremes, and I'll tell you, to live in humble means is a lot easier than to live in prosperity, Okay? He says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a well-quoted verse, isn't it? (laughs) But what does Paul mean when he says, I can do all things, he strengthened me? He means that because of his communion with Christ, the power of Christ is available to him for every need. you got to keep it in context. He's, I learned to suffer need. I've learned to have prosperity. Whatever circumstances life brings me, I can go through it because I have Christ. He's not saying, I can do all this because I'm a Christian. He can do this because he's living in fellowship with Christ. He's abiding in Christ. Philippians 4.13 gives us the positive. John 15.5 gives us the negative. Yeshua says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, in Christ, I can do anything. Apart from Christ, I can't do anything. He's saying, with me, living in dependence of me, you can do all things. But without me, you can do nothing. You know, Philippians 4.13 cannot be claimed by every Christian. Christians want to claim this as a promise. But it's only for believers who are abiding in Christ. Because you can't do everything. You find out a lot of things you're going to fall flat on your face trying to do if you're not in fellowship. But when we walk in fellowship with God, when we're walking in obedience, we have His power available to help us deal with life. And that's what you need, people. Power to deal with life. And out of fellowship, we just don't have that power. We hear... Week after week, stories of voices of the martyrs. How do these people deal with this? So they walk in fellowship. And most American Christians couldn't deal with any of that because they don't know what it means to be in fellowship. Yeshua doesn't say, you better obey my words or the Father's going to punish you. He says, you better listen and follow through on my words so you'll be able to survive and deal with the storms of life. They're going to come. What Jude tells us here about keeping ourselves in the love of God is very similar to what Paul told the Ephesians in 2.10. He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Yeshua for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The nearest antecedent to the relative pronoun which is good works, which along with the following pronoun them refers to the works and not the people. We could translate this, which good works God prepared beforehand. God prepared a series of good works for us as believers to walk in. What are they? What did He prepare beforehand? Well, I think He lays them out in chapter 4 through 6 of Ephesians. He's telling us this is how we are to live as Christians. And we've been through that in the book of Ephesians. 
Vincent says, God prearranged a sphere of moral action for us to walk in it. And when we're walking in that sphere of moral actions, we are keeping ourselves in the love of God because He gave us a lit. Here's the commandments. Here's how you're to treat one another. Here's how you're to live. He says, so that we will walk in them. So that shows the purpose of the good works prepared beforehand. God prepared a path of good works for believers and He's laid them out in the Word of God and He will perform in and through us as we walk by faith in Him. Paul says, so that we would walk in them. This is referring to the good works. It's a locative of sphere. Just as in Jude, in the love of God is a locative of sphere, so is this. We are to order our behavior within the sphere of these good works, and as we do that, we are keeping ourselves in the love of God. Walk here in the Greek, peripateo, it means to literally here talking about your conduct, how you live, your behavior. The Christian life is compared to walking. It's a visual aid to teach us. This is how you live. This is you walk this way. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Yeshua that as you have received from us instructions as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Paul's telling the Thessalonians, you got to walk in a certain way that pleases God. Now, when we talk about pleasing God, we have to make a distinction between our position and our practice. As believers, we stand righteous before God. We couldn't please Him anymore. The good news of the Bible is that our debts are paid in full by Yeshua the Christ. You know, this is cool. Not only have our debts been paid, there's no chance of going into debt again. Okay? No chance because it's been paid in full. Everything's been paid. Past, present, future, it's all grace. So when I talk about pleasing God, I'm talking about Christians, about how they live. Because you as a Christian can live in a certain way that pleases the Father. Pleasing God is a way of life. There's some things we do that doesn't please Him. Learning to walk or live to please Yahweh is a matter of biblical instruction, people. It's neither natural nor is it innate. If you think, I just know what to do. No, you don't, unless you get in the Word of God. You don't know what pleases God. Without the Word, there's simply no way of being able to know what we're called to do. Over and over, though, the Scripture lays out for us. It tells us how we are to walk. So if we're not in the Word, we're not being reminded. And that's something we got to understand, people. Even though you know something, you need to be reminded of what you know. Because you forget what you know, especially in a bad situation. When the storms hit, you're falling apart. It's cool to have another brother come along and say, Hey, remember this. Do you know that God's still sovereign? And you're like, Oh, yeah. I did forget that. (laughs) At least I acted like I forgot it. Okay? Because we do. We fall apart. And that's why, you know, don't think, well, I don't want to tell them. They already know this. They need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded. That's why you need to read the Word over and over and over because you forget what you know. Be reminded of it. So Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. So keeping ourselves in the love of God is a matter of living obediently to the commands of Christ. And Christ's commands or direction for our lives are given for the purpose of our protection. They're given for the purpose of our happiness. You know, there's a wide host of commands that God has for us that the world says are ridiculous. 
Commands about the sanctity and exclusivity of the marital relationship. The world mocks at that. About the restriction of sexual activity to marriage. The world mocks at that. The emphasis on others before self. On forgiveness freely given when asked for. On honesty. Truthfulness. That materialism is not the road to real happiness. Every last one of the rules, plus all the others found in the Word of God, they're for our good. And if we're smart, we'll realize that and seek to live by God's guidelines and remain in His love. And I think that's one thing that Paul understood very well. And he kept himself in the love of God. And listen, his circumstances didn't matter to him. Now they kept telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. He says, why do you weep and break my heart? I'm ready to die right now. It doesn't matter what they do to me. I don't care. He was in fellowship and he just rested no matter the situation. Put him in a dungeon, beat him, do whatever. He's at peace. He's strong. Never any whining. Never any complaining. Because he walked in fellowship. Let me close this morning with Yahweh's words to Israel about people who sin. This just gives us, I think, a picture of sin and how Yahweh deals with sin, even in the life of the believers. Then the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness. Now, a country, the, the Hebrew word for a country here is aretz. It means earth, land, whatever. Just, you know, he's talking about any, a people, a group of people. All right, they sin against me by committing unfaithfulness. In other words, they know what they're supposed to do. They're not doing it. And I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast. So, here's a people that are sinning and you're always dealing with it. He cuts off the bread supply, brings famine, brings beasts against it. He says, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst. Okay, this country, this whatever, this place, these guys are living there, right? By their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord Yahweh. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it, because of the beast, though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, they would not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone will be delivered, but the country will be desolate. Now, people, I see this text is saying, this is not only saying that Yahweh judges the ungodly. He does. And whether it's a Christian that's ungodly, you're still going to get yourself jammed up because sin brings the consequences. But this, these verses are also telling me very clearly that Yahweh delivers the righteous. Okay, these men, he says, by their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves. Saying they are delivering themselves because they are being righteous. There's a deliverance that comes from the righteous. But it's not going to help anybody else. In our country, people, if our country sins as by killing a million and a half babies a year... And we got an organization that cuts up, kills, murders baby and sells parts. And our government says, oh, we don't even want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. You know what? 
If they were doing that to puppies, there'd be an outrage. Peter would be up in arms. Things would be changed already. But they're doing it to human beings. There's blood on this land, people. And our righteousness is not going to save this nation. It'll deliver us, but it won't deliver this nation. If we expect this nation to be delivered, then we've got to be getting a lot more people in on the program of serving and following the Lord. Okay? Because by our righteousness, we will be delivered, people. I don't care what God does to America. If we are in His fellowship, we'll get through it one way or the other. Straight through it, right into His presence, or whatever does come. All right? But it doesn't matter if we're in fellowship. We're walking in obedience to Him. So believers, Jude's words, and the the reason I just spent the whole time today focusing on these words is because they're just so important to us. We've got to keep ourselves in the love of God. Keep ourselves in a sphere where God is free to bless us because of obedience. Because He can't bless sin. He judges sin. He deals with sin. So keep yourselves in that sphere. That sphere of love where the sun is shining brightly upon you and you're in that fellowship. And it won't matter what comes. In fellowship, there's always joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege to look at your word. Lord, it truly is a two-edged sword and is convicting. Father, so often we think we can live however we want to and you'll just wink at it. Help us understand as your children that you love us eternally. You will keep us. That will never change. But as your children, you will also discipline us when we get in areas of sin. Help us, Lord, to desire to understand and live in that full joy of fellowship with the Father. Amen. Thank you.